This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman, and Gabby joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Gabby. Hi there. I'm going to read a few things you've written about your book just to set the stage. You say this, let them have books, presents a model for a reading education that will deliver the skill and the lifelong love of reading to every child. This model consists of extensive pre-literacy experience, early recognition and resolution of potential difficulties in learning to read, and a dynamic reading culture in schools that is centered on encouraging kids to choose their own books. Well, that all makes sense. Why aren't we doing that everywhere? Well, that's a, a very good question <laughs> yeah, and a, a long answer. <laughs> and a long answer. That's why you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, give us some of your background, Gabby, and also the motivation to uh, publish this book. My b- recent background is being a teacher. Um, I've been an English teacher for the last eight or nine years, and I've spent most of my life involved in education in one form or another. I was on a school board for a while, was the president of a school board. Uh, I grew up with an uncle who was a writer, uh, John Holt, about, wrote about education and spent a lot of time in our house talking about it. So it's been a concern of mine my whole life. I wrote this book because so many children struggle with reading in school. First of all, I can always remember somebody saying to me, read to your little kids, read to them, and they will love reading. Is it that simple? It's it's not that simple, but it, that's very important. I actually have one thing that I say before that, before you read to your kids, is read yourself, enjoy reading yourself, um, because yes, it does help to read to kids, but if you love to read yourself when you are reading to them, you will impart that love to them and that it is something to enjoy. The only reason that kids are going to read enough for to really benefit them is if they enjoy it and they learn that joy from their parents reading to them. So, yes, but also read books for your own pleasure, not just to your kids. So it doesn't you don't want it to be mechanical. You they want to feel that from you because it's just natural then. If you love reading, then it's going to come that kind of love is going to be felt by the child. It it is true and it's a funny thing but there's also a study that's been done that has shown that households that have lots of books in them, even if the kids don't read the books, those kids do better in school learning how to read than kids who don't have households full of books. So it's just that environment and that statement and that feeling for books that's transferred to kids that goes a long way to helping them learn how to read and be successful with reading. 
So is this part of this poor liter- literary experience? Is that what you're saying? The early literary experience, yes. Um, when kids enter school, some kids have heard thousands more words than others. They've been read to. They they recognize more words. They have stronger vocabulary. They know books. They love books. They're interested in books. And these kids have an immense advantage over the kids who don't have that. And really, it can take maybe never, but, you know, it takes a long time for those kids to catch up who don't have that pre-literacy experience. What causes a child to hate to read? The, the number one thing that causes a child to hate to read is being forced to read books or, or stories that they're not interested in reading at all, which would be bad enough, but then after you force them to read something they don't want to read, forcing them to do exercises on them, explain what they read that they didn't want to read, <laughs> take tests on what they read that they don't didn't want to read. In other words, taking all the joy out of reading and making it a chore. That's the number one thing. The other thing, of course, is not doing the opposite, not providing them with uh, books that they will enjoy so they can learn to love it. So it's key then that the system allow them to read what they want to read, you're saying? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it seems like that could be taken to the extreme. For well, ex- For example, my son who just devoured books, but he seemed to read a lot of science fiction. Uh-huh. And I used to think, wow, that's all he seems to be doing is reading science fiction. He's reading a lot of books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... You know he he's uh he's very verbal and he's a manager in a business so maybe it all worked out. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. You know, I don't know myself how you can take it to extreme. Um, I have, from my own experience, I have watched kids who start out reading science fiction or gets you know even younger than that they get stuck in certain types of series and if they read enough they're going to get bored with the same old same old and move on the only and particularly if they start young the quantity that they can read over the course of their school years they're bound to move on to something else because there just isn't enough books in that in a narrow genre uh, I have not seen um, it being carried to an extreme, and I've seen kids who read a lot of books. You say that school is the best place for kids to read books. The reason for that is that it's a peer environment and that is very encouraging, and there's also been studies that show that kids who read from their own books in school have more time in school compared to kids who do the same reading at home, the ones that do it in school gain more from it. That's because they share with their friends, they get support from their friends and their classmates for being a reader, and also because school is a learning place, and reading is the best way to learn. Also, school is the best place to access books. If hopefully school has a really good library, kids can go there to read during school, find new books, And also, there's so many distractions at home these days with um, 
TV and uh, media and video games and and lots of other things. So a school can be a really quiet, supportive place for kids to read. What's the best way to reward a child for reading? Find that child another book that they'll like as much as the book they just read. Ooh. That's uh, wouldn't have thought of that. I, I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking a lot of other things. The candy bar, yeah, all the other stuff, you know. That, Money. Yeah, you know that stuff that doesn't really, uh, I guess, mean much, right? Right. <laughs> In the long run, anyway. And if if a, if a kid is really enjoying reading, that will be the best reward. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. So your book is broken down into different parts. You have why kids should read, why kids don't read, what kids need to become readers. Now, there's a real challenge, dyslexia. How do we deal with that? Dyslexia is a, a different brain structure, and I explain it to a great depth in my book. Um, and Learning to read is basically connecting different parts of the brain to come up with one product, and that is uh, visual symbols, sounds, and meaning. And when a brain is structured in such a way that that connection isn't made as efficiently, it makes it harder to learn to read. And unfortunately, in our school system, something gets tacked onto that because usually not discovered until a kid's fairly far along in the learning to read process, and so they slip behind, they have to get extra help, they're separated out, uh, they're labeled as special education, they, they feel that there's something wrong with them, and they get this sort of added trauma um, that goes on top of that. So I, I devote quite a bit in my book to that. My feeling, and from what I have observed, is if it's recognized early enough and if uh, special training is is given to the child, that it does not need to be the trauma. And all dyslexic uh, children can become readers and very good readers. Now, the three words, practice, 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 which we use in a lot of different uh, uh, skills we're trying to learn, does that apply here the same way? Oh, absolutely. But this, in this case, practice is reading. Yes, reading and, and reading what you enjoy to read. Yes. So, and if you, if so, you enjoy it, you're going to read a lot of it, so you're going to get lots right. of practice. So the practice isn't something that is the same like practicing the piano over and over and again where you might get tired of the same old piece that you're trying to learn. Well, it's like uh, my husband's a piano player, and he doesn't practice. He just plays. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, so that's a, a different way of looking at it. He has lots of fun doing it. There's nothing he'd rather do, I think, um, and he gets better by doing it. And that's the same thing with okay. uh, reading. Okay, we have some time at the end here to make a few comments. I'd like you to comment on what's the best advice, the one piece of advice to tell a parent. And we also want you to tell teachers and and administrators and also legislators. So let's start with the parent. What's the number one thing parent must do? Well, as I said earlier, the, the number one thing parent, teacher, educators should do is read be literate yourself, love to read yourself. Only then and only then can you feel the, the passion about 
passing that on to children, and that is the only way that they will pick it up also. Um, so that's that's the number one thing. And what was the second part of that question? Well, I was just, you know, that, that applies to parents, teachers, administrators, and legislators. Right. And the second because thing... Because that forms an attitude about reading then, doesn't yes. it? Okay. And the second thing, number one thing, is access. The main reason kids themselves say they don't read more than they do is they don't have access to the books they want to read. They need to have the choices, they need to have the time to read it, but they need to have access to it. And currently in our education system, access is being shut down. Libraries are being cut back. A lot of schools don't even put in libraries. And uh, summer uh, school libraries are not open. Kids don't have access to books. And if they have access to them, they will read them. Where do you see children losing interest in reading? Where does it happen? What what age is well, most vulnerable? It, it happens, it begins about fourth grade, and it accelerates throughout the school year. So it's you know, it's the 12th grade, more dislike reading than any other grade. So it's something that is being learned in school. Once they learn how, they're excited, they want to read, they have a positive feeling about books that slowly disintegrates as they pass through the school system. And today you say that by 12th grade, fewer than 25% of them like to read, and their right. reading test scores hit bottom. That's a real disadvantage for the rest of their lives. It's a real disadvantage, and it's totally unnecessary. I can, I can completely see a situation where 95 to 100% of seniors love to read and have a very positive attitude toward it. The title of the book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. And the author is Gabby Chapman. Gabby, tell us how to get your book. It's available wherever books are sold. I also have a website, letthemhavebooks.com, one word, all lowercase. My website has a lot of information also for parents and teachers. Well, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Gabby. You're welcome. That was Gabby Chapman, author of her book, Let Them Have Books, a formula for universal reading proficiency. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central, on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Innovation and Insight. 
problems and solutions, capitalizing on your ideas and efforts. That's all a part of Changing the World One Invention at a Time with Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 Central on toginet.com. Rick will be sharing stories of innovation, invention, inspiration, and overcoming obstacles with guests who have been there, done that, and are doing that. Rick will be asking the right questions, helping you identify the real problems, and showing you how to act on your ideas by increasing consumer confidence, and more importantly, increasing your confidence to act on your ideas. For even more information, go to thinktech, that's T-E-K, globally.com. Then join us as Rick and his guest teaches how to develop new ideas and create new products, new businesses, new jobs. And together, let's get our economy growing again. It's changing the world one invention at a time with author and inventor Rick Rowe. Thursday evenings at 6, 5 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Illusion of the Modern World. And the author is Dr. Dennis Knight Hefner. And Dr. Hefner joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. I'm going to read a few things you've written to kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about. Your book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. You say this, most people have a bias towards seeing the world as they would like it to be. It might be for some purposes, however, to know the world as it actually is. And, of course, reality can be scary you're talking about progress. Uh, there's most misleading ideas permeating the modern world is this concept that progress can almost be unlimited. Well, that's not true, is it? It's not quite true. That's something that m- most people don't seem to quite realize, and it's becoming a very, very fundamental problem uh, in our world because uh, you've got to keep your feet on the ground and uh, understand the way things really are, or you're going to make some bad mistakes. Well, we talk about science. We talk about political science. Uh, you have a, a background in, in science. That's correct. Uh, I studied mathematics and uh, physics and engineering in college, and then I decided to go to medical school, and, of course, medical school preparation for it uh, requires a fair amount of science. So I I do consider myself having a science background. Well, when we talk about political science, I I don't know if if that's the right term anymore. I don't know if there's a real science to politics. It's a misleading term. (laughs) Yes, it is a misleading term. That's for sure. Now, why do this book? Why go down this road, doctor? Well, I think that um, the book can serve um, uh, people in many ways in sort of thinking uh, about the future, whether it's short-term future or a longer-term future. Uh, everybody sort of tries to plan for the future a little bit. It's, it's, it's ingrained in us. It's necessary for us to plan ahead a little bit. And in order to... Um, uh, plan for the future as best one can, and it's often difficult or impossible, at least in the long term, you've got to understand what the world is like right now, what reality uh, really is, in order to try as best you can to plan for the future. And I think my book, even though my book doesn't really predict much about the future, I try to give people 
some understanding, a better understanding of what uh, what the world is like really now, so that they can then make their plans for the future as best they can. So how did we become hooked on progress, this addiction that seems to, at least in our own minds, we think it's never-ending? I mean, you, you, your book kind of addresses the history of it, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's mainly because of science and technology over the last, uh, well, particularly 200 years. Uh, and uh, our, our um, uh, lives, our society, our governments, uh, the way we live has been influenced so much by the tremendous advances in science and technology that I think science and technology, because of all the tremendous progress that it has had over the last couple of hundred years, it has infected uh, society in general. In other words, we sort of expect the same sorts of, the same types of progress in uh, society in general, in government, uh, in political activities, in economic activity, economic growth. We expect progress to be just like it has been in science and technology. And unfortunately, uh, that's not quite true. Yeah, we always uh, want, well, at least you hear the the premise that we want things better for our children than we had it. Oh, yes. That's, uh, yeah. You know, like there was something wrong with what we have. <laughs> there isn't enough or something. I don't right. know. <laughs> and, of course, that's the American dream. That, right. You know, our children will have it better than we have, and that's, that's our American dream. And, of course, there's real value in that kind of thinking. Obviously, you, you know, that drives uh, free enterprise. It drives capitalism, and, and all that is critical to uh, progress in many areas as well that are needed. I mean, of course, we, we wouldn't, none of us would want to go back to the old days when uh, medicine or medical uh, practices were so crude. Right, right. Who I would agree. want to go back to that? I mean, nobody would. <laughs> right, I agree. And uh, uh, we probably can, you know, maintain uh, and maybe even increase our uh, worldly uh, benefits uh but it's just not going to be as uh as as great and as rapid as it has been and in some areas uh we have to start getting used to the idea that um you know even though our children if we do things right they they may be as well off as we are or almost as well off but they may not be better off right uh well, you have some uh, interesting titles to some chapters. I'm looking at them in, like, The Digital Delusion of Neurophysiology. <laughs> yeah. What, well, what are we talking about there? Well, that's one of the my favorite subjects in that it has sort of colored a lot of uh, thinking in some areas um, throughout the last half century, and when I say some areas, in, in, in the way that people conceive the brain uh, as working and uh, whether artificial intelligence can eventually make our lives greater and greater. Uh, unfortunately, even though most people throughout the last half century have thought that the brain probably 
uh, it works on a basis of digital information processing, just like computers do. And people have felt that computers uh, can have an analogy to, to the human brain. Unfortunately, the brain works on a different basis. It's not a digital information processor. And uh, that makes a whole lot of difference in terms of what one can do in terms of uh, understanding the brain, controlling the brain, and uh, making advances in artificial intelligence. There's been a lot of misconceptions uh, over the last half century. A lot of news about the economy right now. Of course, we hear the term, we want to grow the economy. This is so important. This is so critical. It's like we're obsessed with that. If we're going to recover from this current recession, what about all this growing, growing talk? Well, unfortunately, and especially for our, our children, uh, it, it's just not going to be able to be, we're not going to be able to grow our way out of this sort of problem, at least uh, easily or to the extent that a lot of people uh, think we're going to grow. In other words, uh, I think growing is, um, I think there is some evidence that growing is starting to become more difficult. We can sort of see that now in the economy. And it's probably going to become even more difficult in the future. I'm not going to say that all growth in all areas is going to shortly stop. But overall, I think it's going to be harder to continue economic and social, political growth and improvement. And if we don't realize that and take it into account, uh, we're probably going to make some very bad uh, political and governmental missteps and, and, and judgments that may cause more harm than, than good. There's something called, that you call, deterministic chaos, uh, chaos theory. It's uh, something that you say that we need to understand in order to understand the world. Well, I think it's very, very important. Uh, and most people have heard of chaos theory, but they don't know a lot about it. And it's a very difficult subject to to try to understand. But I think that uh, our uh, social, political, governmental systems, our society in general, is um, a, a, a very complex system that has some chaotic types of behavior. Now, when I say chaotic, chaos theory does not mean that things are just totally random and totally screwed up, but it means that the very complex system uh, is rather unpredictable and even more important that tiny little influences, influences that you wouldn't think would make much difference, can have huge impacts on the way the system works, particularly a little farther down the line, a little farther in the future. So little minor uh, political, social decisions, governmental decisions, if the... Uh, the social political system is somewhat chaotic, like I'm pretty sure it is, little tiny decisions can have huge consequences. And if they're the wrong decisions, they can have hugely adverse uh, effects on the function of the system. 
So chaos theory is important for people at least to have some grasp, some idea of its implications. Now we hear the term uh, progressive liberal today, and we hear of uh, this this group advocating a better world where everyone uh, helps each other and and this utopia kind of of existence. What's your view of utopia? <laughs> well, uh, utopia has been the idea of utopia has been influenced over the last three centuries or so by Newtonian physics and the idea that everything can kind of be determined and controlled. Uh, we have felt that we sort of live in a clockwork universe. That is, everything, uh, if you have enough data, you can see that it kind of works perfectly and deterministically. And if so, certainly you can control such systems if you have enough information. And in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, there's a very important um, uh, sort of uh, philosophy, a uh, uh, scientific philosophy called logical positivism, uh, which sort of uh, uh, developed this idea, and it was the idea that even language in our culture uh, could be sort of controlled and influenced toward a perfection. And in the early part of the uh, 20th century, the political idea of progressivism, uh, the progressive philosophy, was sort of built on these types of ideas. That is, a governmental bureaucracy could learn to control our governance uh, toward a perfection, and this is indeed a delusion. It can't happen in a uh, chaotic system like our, our social systems are. And so these utopian ideas that we can get close to or even attain perfection in our social and governmental systems, it's, it's, it's a delusion. And uh, people should remember that the word utopia in the original Greek um, means no place. That's the literal meaning. And, uh, <laughs> no place. <laughs> yeah, no place. And so utopia will forever remain nowhere to be found because it's no place. Interesting. My goodness. <laughs> well, what would be your advice? Uh, just some kind of closing thoughts. We've got a couple minutes here. What would be your advice to young people today as they look toward the future what kind of a perspective do they need to have on their future? Well, they need to be Republicans to start off. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, my my son's going to call you right away and argue with you. <laughs> because the the Republicans uh, are are tend mostly to be conservative, and a conservative political philosophy now is more important than ever uh, because conservatives tend to be the ones that think a little more realistically about the world. Uh, they apply some brakes to the runaway governmental machine and brakes to prevent us going down the wrong tracks at ever-increasing speeds are, are more important nowadays than they were before. 
so um, I think that uh, young people need to really uh, think about which political party they want to be associated with, and hopefully most of them will realize that a conservative philosophy is best, and therefore they'll have to be Republicans. And if they don't like some aspects of the Republican Party, then they're going to have to get their hands dirty and try to change the party within. But uh, it's certainly going to be the best party for them to, uh, to be associated with. The title of the book, Unlimited Progress, The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. Any closing thoughts, Doctor? Um, I just hope someone uh, is... Uh, got the energy to read my book. Uh, it's a little difficult in places, but I think anybody who is a thinker, who reads uh, nonfiction, is interested in the world, uh, and that includes a lot of people, I think they'll find something valuable in my book. You say you're a pessimist. Uh, uh, someone told me that a pessimist is an optimist with the facts. <laughs> I, I think that's right. I think I, I, I can have a little bit of optimism in that uh, things may not be as bad as in the future as they could be. If we do things right, we can maybe muddle through. <laughs> so that that's my optimistic view. If we're lucky, we can muddle through. Muddle through. All right. Well, tell us how to get your book, Dr. Hefner. Well, it's published by iUniverse, and um, uh, it can be uh, uh, obtained uh, through them. But, of course, it's available uh, other places, too, on Amazon.com and uh, in Borders bookstores and and some other bookstores. Well, thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it very much. That was Dr. Dennis Knight Hefner. He is the author of his book, Unlimited Progress. The Grand Delusion of the Modern World. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Togginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. 
The girlfriend at principal was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com and then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to have mm-hmm. somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Word of Faith Preachers, How Misinterpretation of Scripture Might Lead You Astray. And the author is Joe Pahota Jr. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. How you doing, sir? Good to have you with us. And... Not only are we going to talk about this book, Word of Faith Preachers, we're also going to be talking about your first book, Holiness, Can the Church Do This or Not? And then a subtitle, and if the church can, how come it seems so many in the church aren't doing it? So you've got real questions about what the church is doing in relationship to scripture and doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. In fact, in your book, Word of Faith Preachers, you talk about four main heresies, and I'm reading from what you have written, why they are out of touch with sound doctrine, and you mention what these four are, tithing, the prosperity gospel, our Christian gods with a small letter G, and Jews mm-hmm. don't need to accept Jesus to be saved. So we're go- we'll, t- we'll touch on a couple of those this is very comprehensive. You obviously have done a lot of uh, thinking and studying. Uh, what motivated you to do all this? Well, on the Word of Faith Preachers book, sir, it was really just, you know, watching, you know, TV evangelism, just watching a lot of these preachers on TV. And particularly as it pertains to, you know, them asking for money and, you know, support of their ministries or to support different programs on TV, which I don't have a problem with, you know, giving the ministries and giving the church and I. By all means, I, I totally applaud, you know, people giving to churches the finance ministry and so on and so forth. Um, but some of the some of the things they were saying in order for people to get money, I mean, you know, it was just totally, you know, not in, in line with sound biblical doctrine. Like if they give, you know, a thousand dollars, they're going to come in covenant with them that, you know, God's going to pay off their bills or they're going to come in to some money somewhere, some kind of way or whatever. And I'm like, wow, where does the will of God, you know? fall into any of this kind of stuff and it just was like after watching all these tv preachers and all the and unfortunately i have such a well it's good for me i have such a burden and passion and to really want to bless people and help people i just i was so burdened by this because i'm like wow there's you know thousands upon thousands of people that are giving to these churches and these ministries and these these tv programs and i'm just like wow you know all with the expectation that they're going to be blessed and there's no sound biblical basis for it um and some of these preachers are still preaching it because they've been preaching it for years or whatever. And, and just to give you a little background on myself, I come out of the Word of Faith uh, movement. So I'm very familiar with, and I talk about this in the book, I'm very familiar with a lot of the stuff that they preach and teach. And, and I used to preach it and teach it myself, and then, but the Lord led me in another direction to show how really devastating and how hard 
um, it's just totally not in line with sound doctrine. How really devastating and hard it can really mess them, mess them folk up. Well, um, you say your first book, Holiness, on, uh, can the church do this or not, was really influenced about your tour in Iraq. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, that one was basically because, you know, I was really, you know, kind of, you know, the, the whole, I can't say, the Holy Spirit gave me a lot of questions regarding that. I was in Iraq, and the Lord allowed me, blessed me to pastor the gospel service over there. And after Bible study one night, one of the preachers came up to me and was like, Hey, sir, you know, you really encouraged me because you're the first, you know, man of God I've seen in a long time not chasing a skirt. And I complimented him and I said, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. But then the Holy Spirit later on asked me a whole bunch of questions like, if it's been so long since the brother, you know, he's seen not chasing a skirt, what is that saying about the men in the body of Christ? Or, you know, what is that saying about the body of Christ, period? Like, you know, you know, the Holy Spirit asked me, when has sin become the standard and holiness become the exception? You know, why is it when somebody's actually, you know, living a Christian, genuine Christian life for real, why is that looked upon as so abnormal? But if you're living in sin and, and, and doing all kinds of mess, that's like, well, that's just how we are, because after all, nobody's perfect. And, and it seems like we're just making excuses as to why the church isn't doing it. And, you know, after talking to a lot of people, I ask people, well, how come you don't go to church? And the number one reason that people give for not going to church is because of all the hypocrites in the church. So I say in my introduction, you know, you know I'm tired of that statement being true. So it starts off as an, as an indictment against the body of Christ. However, though, it doesn't end that way. I... I tell people, you know, what I, I identify the problem, and then I say what we can do to fix it, and then I really give practical application at the end of the book to show how, you know, the church can overcome all these problems. So, but yes, it was definitely birthed in Iraq, no question. You believe that people have a responsibility, Christians have a responsibility to study the Bible for themselves instead of just taking, you know, the pastor's word for it or an evangelist's word for it? Right, that most definitely. So they would benefit a lot from that kind of study and to take a college course or two? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I applaud anybody to, you know, either, you know, if you can't afford going to a seminary, then that's fine. But, you know, at least get some kind of, you know, biblical foundation and biblical doctrine, you know, by all means, you know. And that's even biblical. The Apostle Paul said in the Bible, you know, you know, talking about the Bereans, he said they were, you know, more nobler than the Christians in Thessalonica because they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. They just didn't take the Paul's word for it. They said, no, we're going to go back and check this thing out. And Paul said they were noble. He complimented them for that. Um, but a lot of people, you know, particularly in the Word of Faith movement, they just take what their pastor is saying as if it's, you know, directly from the mouth of God without really, you know, studying the scriptures to find out whether or not they're saying is true. But unfortunately, if, if, they, if they've never been to seminary, if they, particularly if they've never taken a, say, biblical interpretation class, they won't know that their pastor's saying the wrong stuff because they don't know how to interpret the Bible themselves because they've never been taught. So this book, in my second book, Word of Faith Preachers, I tell people how to study the Bible and how to do, you know, how to properly do biblical interpretation so people can know how to read your Bible, not just read it, but study it, so therefore they can say, hey, hey, wait a minute, That what, what they just said on TV, that's not right. That's not what the Bible is actually teaching. They're taking Scripture out of context. So I teach people in the book how to do that. You know, so I take what, I, what I've learned in, in my biblical studies, you know, taking college courses and stuff, and I give that to the reader to help the reader best understand not only what they're hearing, but also help them to interpret the Bible better themselves. 
you make this statement. Many Christians still believe that we have a sin nature and therefore are sinners. And then you say, you don't believe that. Right, exactly. Yeah, and this is something that I, I will get to their credit. I, I got that from the Word of Faith movement. That, that's one of the definite doctors that come out of the Word of Faith. And this is actually one of the doctors I think the Word of Faith got right, um, which is very controversial. A lot of people will probably not agree with me on this, but, you know, I, I kind of liken it to, you know, if you ever get pulled over, you know, for, for speeding, you know, on, and during, you know, going down the road, and the way, you know, just hitting the brake is not going to make you stop the car. You know, if, if you're speeding, what you got to do is you got to take the, your, you know, your foot off the gas. Well, to use that analogy, you know, if I'm sinning, you know, if my foot doesn't get off the gas, I'm going to keep sinning over and over and over and over again. So in, in this case, your foot is the sin nature. So in order for us to stop sinning, the sin nature has to be done away with. Otherwise, we're just going to keep sinning over and over again, and Jesus basically died in vain. You know, because Jesus came to redeem us of our sins, but if we can't stop sinning, then either one, Jesus has to keep dying over and over again, which is, you know, blatant heresy, or two, you know, when the Bible says, be holy for he's holy, if I still have a sin nature, I can't, ultimately, I can't live holy, neither can any other Christian either. So I say if we do sin after we become a Christian, it's because our mind has not been transformed. We haven't been transformed into the image of Christ yet. So I believe when we get saved, our sin nature goes away, i.e., you know, our foot's being taken off the gas pedal, in this case the sin pedal, and therefore our sin nature is gone, and what we've been, what's replaced it was the divine nature. So we now have the nature of Christ, which it talks about in Second Peter chapter 1. So I don't believe Christians struggle with a sin nature. I believe what we struggle with is an untransformed mind that still thinks like the world. So the more, you know, we continue to grow in God, your mind will eventually start to think like the things of Christ. And therefore, you know, sinning less becomes much, much easier because the sin nature has been taken away and your mind is starting to think like God now instead of thinking like your unsaved, you know, unsaved self before we were, before we got saved. Tell us your view on tithing. I believe tithing, that's a very good question, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, sir, because that's also a very controversial topic, and this is huge in the Word of Faith movement, but not just in the Word of Faith, but there's Baptist churches and many Christian churches that preach this. Um, I am against it. I'm for New Testament giving instead. Um, most churches, when they preach or teach tithing, they're going to come out of Malachi 3, you know, well, man robbed God, but you have robbed me, you know, and you have robbed God in tithes and offerings. So they define tithing as 10% of, you know, of your gross income. Now, some churches will you know, we'll go back and forth between gross income or net income. But usually what they say, they all agree that it's 10% of one's income. The problem is Malachi 3, if you look at it, it's talking about food and everything like that. Tithing in the Bible was never money. And I'm just going to say that again because most Christians don't know that. Tithing in the Bible was never money. So to give 10% of your gross income to the church is, is a blatant lie. It's just totally not true. And I, I devout the first 60 pages of Word of Faith Preachers. The first 60 pages of that book talks about the tithing doctrine of itself. And I show how Malachi 3, chapter 3, does not apply to New Testament believers. It does not apply to Christians whatsoever. So when God says, you have robbed me, he wasn't talking to us. He wasn't talking to New Testament Christians. He was talking to the Old Testament Jews under the law of Moses, which we all know, you know, we don't live under the law of Moses as far as, you know, because we live under grace now. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you know, we can just sin and do whatever we want to do. But the tithing law in Malachi 3 does not apply to New Testament believers. So to answer your question really short, because, again, it would take me two hours to really talk about all this, but I'm just going to say that tithing doesn't apply to New Testament believers. 
what we should do instead is give what we can. You know, give according to the way the Lord has prospered us. Because, again, you can't give a million dollars if you don't have a million dollars. But if you can give $10, $100, you know, give according to your ability. Give according to the way the Lord has prospered you, and not on some 10% law known as tithing. Tithing in the New Testament doesn't exist at all. It's mentioned in the New Testament, but nowhere in the New Testament is it commanded for us to tithe. And therefore, that's probably one of the biggest, you know, heresies or lies in the body of Christ today. What about this belief that Christians have concerning prosperity, that if they're living according to what they believe, then they should prosper? Yeah, exactly. Well, I I believe in prosperity, but I have a different definition of it. My definition of prosperity is having a relationship with Jesus Christ and knowing God's will for your life and doing it. That's my definition, because you could be poor or rich or whatever, but if you're in God's will, then you're prosperous. Um, Now, with that being said, I don't have a problem with Christians being wealthy, and I say this numerous times in the book. I don't have a problem with Christians being wealthy. You know, if God blesses you with an idea and people are buying it and people are, you know, you're making millions of dollars off of it or you you have your own business and it's flourishing and, and things like that. So I don't have a problem with Christians being wealthy. But what I do have a problem with is, you know, teaching people because, you know, we're Christians, you know, because, you know, we're, we're children of the king, we're royalty, and we, we start to go around acting like, you know, that we're entitled to this. Like, you know, when we become saved, when we become a Christian, we automatically, you know, are, are coming into the money. You know, wealth should, you know, we should expect it because, you know, Christians are automatically supposed to be wealthy because we're saved. And that's just not true. Um, I don't, again, I don't have a problem with Christians being wealthy, but to, to, to have this idea or this attitude of I now have a self, uh, a state of entitlement because I'm a Christian now, and this entitlement guarantees me prosperity financially. Now, they'll go and define prosperity as, you know, prosperity in your health, prosperity in your finances, prosperity in your jobs, and your relationships, you know, having wholeness in all areas of their life. That's how these Word of Faith preachers define prosperity. But the truth of the matter is, I mean, you know, I wish that were true. I mean, there's Christians today that are, you know, dying of cancer and dying of diseases and are still in wheelchairs or whatever. So just because we're saved, it doesn't exempt us from being sick from time to time. Just because we're saved, it doesn't exempt us from the recession that we just had or are still in. I mean, just because we're Christian, it does not exempt us from hard times. As a matter of fact, the Bible says clearly, and many times, it says those who live godly shall suffer persecution. And the Bible says many times of how we're supposed to endure and rejoice when we fall into many trials and tribulations, because we are going to have them. So just because we're a Christian, that does not exempt us from any of that stuff. Um, but that's what they basically teach. They say, well, since we're saved, since we're a Christian, that prosperity is just supposed to follow us, you know, like we have some, some sense of entitlement. And that's just not biblically true at all. And what about Christians being gods with a small g? What What is that all about? Basically what it says is, and this, this goes back into the prosperity thing too, is according to the Word of Faith preachers, they believe as a Christian that you're basically, you know, you're gods with a small g. Meaning, in the book of Genesis it says how, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. So he spoke it, and therefore, since he spoke it, it automatically, you know, the, the light that never was miraculously came into existence because God spoke it, which is true. Well, since they say, we, you know, once we get saved, we now come from God. We go back to the way Adam and Eve had it before the fall, before they sinned. So consequently, what they believe is, by the power of confession, just like God said, let there be light, and there was light, as a Christian, we can say, let there be whatever, and whatever has to happen because we spoke it. Meaning, since we come from God, we have the same creative ability in us 
to speak things into existence just like God did. So when God said, let there be light, and there was light, we can say, let there be a promotion of my job, and the powers that be in the atmosphere or in the air or whatever have to do what we say. And basically what they say is, is you know, we're, we're, we're small gods, you know, or therefore we're small little messiahs running around the earth, just like Jesus was on the earth. We're like little messiahs or little Jesus is on the earth, just like Jesus was on the earth. And they believe that we're little gods with a small lowercase g. Um, and we can speak things into existence and do everything God does because we come from God. Um, well, that's just total, total heresy. I mean, we're not little divine beings running around the earth, and we don't have creative ability in our words. Now, granted, I do believe in the power of positive confession. I do believe it's better to speak positively as opposed to negatively. I do believe it's better to, to think more positive as, as, as compared to thinking ne- negatively. So in that instance, I do give them credit for that. Um, I do believe in being a positive person in, as a whole and speaking positive things. But, you know, to command things as if, you know, the powers that be in the atmosphere have to do it as if we're God, it, it's, it's blasphemy, quite frankly, because we're now putting ourselves equal with Jesus or equal with God, which unfortunately is what a lot of these preachers do. Uh, one preacher said, you know, I'm not saying you have a God in you, I'm saying you are one. Um, and that's and that was Kenneth Copeland, and he, he believes that, and he says that, and that's one of his main teachings is, you know, you don't have, not just the, you know, you just don't have the Holy Spirit in you, i.e. God, you know, you don't have God in you, but you are one. And that's a prominent theme or prominent teaching in the Word of Faith movement, and that's section three of my book, and that's just one of the heresies I come up against very vehemently. The title of the book, Word of Faith Preachers, How Misinterpretation of Scripture Might Lead You Astray. The author is Joe Bahota Jr. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, so there's many ways you can get it. Um, it's on Amazon.com, it's on Borders.com, Barnes and & Nobles, and BooksAmillion.com. They're all there. Softback, hardback, or, you know, even if you got a Kindle, it's on Kindle as well. Um, so it, it, either one of those four places you can get it. Again, Borders, uh, Barnes & Nobles, Books A Million, or Amazon. They're on all of them. And along with your other book, Holiness, can the church do this or not? And if the church can... How come it seems so many in the church aren't doing it? Well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate the time. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.